What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. What's up, Kitty Cats? Welcome back to another edition of Lions of Liberty, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, which I bring to you every single Monday, where I host interviews like you're going to hear many, many of today, as well as roundtable discussions such as our fabled and much enchanted and much loved libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. We're going to try to bring you another one of those fairly soon. Uh, in the meantime, if you missed it, be sure to listen to our live episode of that um, from Porkfest. Just a couple clicks back in your old podcast feed. But it's not just me here at Lions of Liberty. I also have some wonderful friends and compatriots, uh, such as Brian McWilliams, who hosts your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land, as well as my buddy John Odie Odermatt, who breaks down the broken criminal justice system every single Friday on Felony Friday. You don't want to miss a thing. We are the only libertarian variety show out there, so you got to hit that subscribe button, whether you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, you can listen to us on Alexa via TuneIn. I don't think you can hit a subscribe button there, though, but point being... You hit subscribe, you get all the shows, they show up in your feed, and everyone's happy. Uh, today, what I'm going to be doing is continuing. I have so much audio, so much audio from the Libertarian National Convention in New Orleans last week. I'm talking five, six hours of audio. I already gave you a big show from the Human Action Bash two weeks ago, and last week I gave you a big show uh, with a whole bunch of interesting names, mostly focusing on persuasion and how to discuss the ideas of liberty and uh, some differing viewpoints on that. Now today, what you're mostly going to hear are interviews I did with candidates on the ground there uh, in New Orleans. I met so many interesting people whose campaigns I wasn't really aware of, so I'm happy to share uh, a little bit of that with you guys, and I'm going to have a little bit of an announcement towards the end of the show about uh, what we're going to be doing uh, to try to help some libertarian candidates going forward. And besides the great libertarian candidates that you're going to hear from in today's show, uh, you're going to be bookended by a couple other interviews I did. The first one is by uh, with a couple impressive young gentlemen with an organization called Young Americans for the Convention of States. And I'm mostly impressed with them, not just because of what they're doing in the political realm, but I mean, this organization is led by a young man who started his activism when he was 12 years old and he's now 15. And I, I'm very impressed. So I think you will be as well. And then towards the end of the show, you're going to hear from a guy who's been on this program before, former candidate for president, former candidate for the gubernatorial office here in California. He is Zoltan Istvan, a big uh, mover and shaker in the transhuman community. Um, and if you don't know what that is, well, stay tuned because it's, it's at the end of the show. And I think you're going to really enjoy my conversation with him. And you are definitely going to want today's show notes where just like last week, I will timestamp all the different interviews that you're going to hear today. And you you can find those at lionsofliberty.com slash 357, this being, yes, the 357th edition of this very program. You may hear a little bit of background conversation since we, are in, we were in the very large media room and bonus points to whoever uh, can tell me uh, who they hear in the background of one of these interviews. I'm just going to put that out there. But uh, folks, I think it's time to get ready to roar. 
All right, Lions Liberty fans, we are here live on Facebook. A couple young gentlemen here. Uh, the youngest one is, is right next to me here. This is David Spencer, the national coordinator of the Young Americans for the Convention of States. I got it right, didn't I? Yes. I practiced saying that a few times before. It's a lot of words. <laughs> and then we've got Bryce Barris, who is the, uh, I should shake your hand as well, David. We did this all off camera, but you know we're going to yeah. be official here. Bryce Barris, who is the state director for the Young Americans for the Convention right. of States. I got it all right. See? Yeah, great. <laughs> this is why we practice before we go live. Uh, I'm going to start with you, David, because um, you... Uh, you are very impressive. You are 15 years old. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and you started the, the, well, why don't you tell us your little story? How did you get started with this organization? How did this all come about? You started it when you were how old? Um, between 12 and 13, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, and originally, I got involved through the Republican Party in the Trump campaign. Um, but then one day, um, I was took up to meet Mark Meckler um, at the Capitol, and he introduced me at Convention of States, and from there... Yeah, uh, it blossomed into forming the Young Americans for Conventional States and what we have now. Okay. And so why don't you explain exactly what this organization is? What is the purpose of the Young Americans for the Convention of States? Well, the Young Americans for Convention of States is to educate and to teach the kids about what they didn't learn in the schools and to create huh, citizens for self-governance <laughs> chapters. To create citizens for self-governance chapters where children can learn how to govern themselves and, get, and become active in their state legislatures and make a difference truly. And what is the Convention of States itself? What does that term mean? Well, Convention of States um, is a bipartisan grassroots organization to call an Article 5 Convention of the States and propose amendments under three application areas. Term limits, fiscal restraints, and limiting the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. So you want to actually make changes to the Constitution to enshrine those into the law of the land, so to speak? Correct. Okay. And uh, Bryce, how did you get involved with this organization? I got I signed up when uh, I was uh, 24 in 2014. I'm 28 now. And um, what happened was I signed up online. First, I, I wasn't really sure about Convention of States at first. I wasn't sure. I signed up, um, and I read Mark Levin's book, The Liberty Amendments. I looked into it and into Rob Nadelson's work and, and, and other... Um, uh, and other uh, constitutional experts, and I and I was sold. I was sold, um, and uh, I signed up to volunteer. And uh, one of the national staff, Jenny, called me. Says, "Hey, why don't you uh, uh, why don't you be the state director?" I'm like, "Whoa, really? The state director?" <laughs> so yeah, so I signed up to be the state director. I've been the state director since 2014 here in the great state of Louisiana. Now, uh, you know. I this all sounds like a great idea, right, on the surface. These are all things I think most libertarians can support. Uh, the question is, how do you actually make this happen, A? And then, B, how do you actually, you know, there are so many things in the Constitution that we have right now that are completely ignored by our, our politicians and uh, you know, our congressmen and senators. So how do you, act, well, we'll start with the first question. How do you actually go in, in terms of enacting this and getting this convention to occur in the first place? Do you want to take care of the first? I'll take care of the second. I'll take care of the first. So the way Article 5 works is you got to get two-thirds of the states to call a convention. That's 34 states. Okay. They must agree on the topic of the convention. So you can't have 17 states for just term limits, 17 states for just a balanced budget amendment. they got to agree on the topic. Once two-thirds make the call, you have the convention. Then the convention makes the recommendations. They make the recommendations in form of constitutional amendments. Then those amendments, once, they're, once they pass the convention, once they get 26 states at the convention, then they're sent back to the states for ratification, where it takes three-quarters of the states, 38 states, to ratify whatever comes out of the convention. If, the, if, if an amendment gets 38 states, it becomes a part of the Constitution. 
So the, the I guess the task of this organization, Convention of States, is to within each state rally support for this within the state, and then just, so does the state legislature have to approve it? Is, is yes. that where it comes yes. from? Yes. Um, and the fun or the uh, very neat thing about this is. Uh, our applications, we have petition signers in every single house district in America. And what, what kind of response have you guys gotten? Obviously, you're here at the Libertarian National Convention. Obviously, I think uh, most of your audience is probably going to be Republican, uh, Libertarian. Maybe there yeah. is Democratic support that you found. I don't know. What, what kind of support have you been receiving here and you know, out, there in, out there in the world? Well, I would say a solid three-fourths of the people that come up to our booth are either in support of this or they are eager to learn mm-hmm. and understand what Convention of States is. And so overall, we've had a really good response with the libertarian crowd, and it's great to see so many people um, trying to fight for liberty and fight for their freedoms. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you here in Louisiana, we passed the application in 2016. We got 100% Republican support, but we also got a lot of Democrats that joined us too because they because they agree if we have to spend within our means then the federal government has to do so too so there is democrat support for this there's bipartisan support for this on both sides so why don't you tell me a little bit more about how this would actually work let's just say that the convention occurs um that the these terms are passed and so now what how how does this actually get enforced how do we make sure that the federal government is actually reined in we were just talking to larry sharp a few minutes before before, before we got on the air and he was he was questioning you in the same way how do you actually plan to rein them in you know in in the real world in in a world where our politicians really pretty pretty much ignore the constitution and and they pretty much uh work for themselves and their constituency but their constituency constituency is usually major corporations not really their their voting constituency so how do you intend to get this to actually you know take shape once if if you're able to get it you know passed through the, through the uh, the convention yeah so so um the problem is there are fundamental structural problems with the federal government one of the problems that we were just talking about before we went on the air was Congress has delegated its Article I powers to these administrative executive agencies. These agencies legislate by fiat. They're bureaucrats that are not elected by, by the people that, that legislate by fiat. The way you rein that in is through a constitutional amendment. You tell Congress, no, these powers given to you in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution are not yours to give away. You're not allowed to delegate You're them to other bodies. You're not allowed to delegate them at all. That's one way. But talking about the Supreme Court. So once you get down to it, the courts really are par- are really at the core of the issue because it was the courts that okayed Congress to delegate its power. So the question then becomes, how do you overturn a Supreme Court decision? That is a, the question. Well, you can wait a lifetime for it to reverse itself. You could do that, <laughs> right? I always like to point out slavery. How was, how was the Dred Scott decision reversed? Worst Supreme Court history in the history of the Supreme Court. How is that reversed? Via constitutional amendment, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. That's how it was reversed. So that's what you're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. Use Article 5, the state-driven process, to rein in the federal government, to overturn these court decisions, to put the federal government back in its constitutional cage. I'm a little curious. You know, why why do you necessarily need the convention of states to occur to to pass amendments? Because there have been many amendments to the Constitution that have come in without this convention process. So why why is it important to have this entire convention process to establish these as part of the Constitution, as opposed to the normal process where states just will ratify a new amendment to the Constitution as they have you know twenty some odd times in the past? Right. Well, you see. Uh as Colonel George Mason said, um, whenever in the late stages of ratification, he said, well, in Article 5, it shows that um, 
the Congress has the power. The Congress has the power to propose amendments, but not the states. And if we don't give the states power, then the, then a tyrannical legislature will never will never restrain its power and will never do anything to stop its overreach. And so that's why we have to use um, the state legislature option, Article 5, to rein back in the government because they're never going to fix the problems. Congress will never and has never fixed the problems that they caused. Very simply, what we're doing now isn't working. We need to try something else. I'm not saying elections aren't important. You need to do your civic duty and vote. You need to join campaigns for your favorite candidates. We need to do those things, but there's something else we could be doing too, and that's calling for an Article 5 convention of the states because like uh, David just said here, they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. So where are we now uh, in terms of progress with this with this organization? Uh, is is a convention something that you can see on the horizon uh, in? I don't want to say, well, maybe in your lifetime because you're very young. In my lifetime, uh, <laughs> yes, I would think in your lifetime. Um, right now, we're at 12 states across the country. I have the 34 needed to call the convention. And you have the full support you need in those 12 states, you're saying? Um, those 12 states are already passed. The applications are okay. already passed. So that's done. Yes. And Louisiana is one of those states. Okay. So you must be doing pretty pretty well with your job Oh, there. we're doing pretty well. We're, actually, we just had another piece of legislation passed regar- regarding Article 5 in Louisiana, our Commissioner Selection Act. So some people ask us, who are going to be the people at this convention? Well, the states are going to select the people. Well, well how do we know that? Well, Louisiana just passed its own Commissioner Selection Act. The state legislature is going to choose who goes to the convention. We have five particular... Uh, commissioners that are going to go. And we've included state legislator and citizen activists within the delegation. So that's who's going to be at this convention. And they're going to be restrained. The legislature is going to give them instructions. They're, they're, going to, they're commissioners, so they will receive a commission from the legislature. They're not allowed to go beyond those instructions. Very impressive, guys. I think this is a really interesting idea. Um, I'm, I'm sure this is a place that, uh, here at the Libertarian National Convention where you can get a lot of traction and a lot more support. I'm sure that's why you guys are here working hard yep. on it. Uh, is there any last words you want to say about this uh, to anybody? And, of course, feel free to plug away on, on both your organization's websites, the Facebook pages, the whole deal. Well, you know, I really encourage each and every one of you to like our Facebook uh, page. It's just com- simply Convention of States. Go to our website, conventionofstates.com, and sign the petition because this is truly a fight for liberty. Um, it's a fight for our Amer- our America. Um, this is this is a cause that it isn't it isn't going to take a party, it isn't going to take a candidate. It's going to take each and every one of you out there working to fight for what you believe in. Bryce, any last words? Yeah, this movement is all about liberty and self government. That's what we're all about: uh, returning power not only back to the states, but to the people and to their local communities. That's what this is. That that's essentially what we're trying to do. Well, I think the Libertarian National Convention is a pretty, a pretty um, welcoming home for that message. So, yes. gentlemen, yeah. David, thank you so much. Thank Bryce, you. thank you so much. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Best of luck. Thank you. Yes, I am here uh, with David Ross, who yes. is running for – you actually told me you're running for two positions. You're running yes. for Congress, and what else are you running for? I'm running for Congress, which I decided to do first. And okay. then uh, one of our state reps, or the state rep in my district, decided to make a statement that I, I found just – I was unable to let it go. One of your and, current state reps? Yes, my okay. current state rep. Uh, we were talking about medical cannabis. Uh, uh, there was a, a bill in the state house, and he came to the floor of the state senate to to speak out against it. 
and he said that people who were suffering and people that were uh, in pain should just wait for science. Sounds like something Jeff Sessions would say. Yeah, and I just couldn't let that go. I, I thought that was that was wrong. You know, if you're if you're uh, c- considering suicide, or if you're suffering, or your child has a hundred seizures a day, waiting for science is not a good idea. Because if you wait for science, and science has been wrong so many times, I can. There's a list of 30 different drugs that has been approved by the FDA that turned out to be so bad that it was pulled. So science is wrong. And, and vice versa, there's, there's a lot of drugs out there that could be helping people that are held up by all the bureaucracy. Right. So it right. goes both ways. And so there's, you know, a lot of things that are illegal at one time were medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think we're just now rediscovering that. But, uh, you know, it was medicine for thousands of years, way back to the, the Chinese and, you know, over 5,000 years ago. And, uh, you know, today for us to have the audacity to say that this plant that came with the planet is evil and we should eradicate it. I don't see it. <laughs> right. So how did you first get uh, interested in, in libertarianism, and how did you get involved with the Libertarian Party? I'm sure you could probably go on for hours like most of us could about it, but you know, try to give us like the, the elevator pitch version. I, I'll give you the elevator okay. version. When I was a kid, when I lived out in the country, we had three channels, and uh, I discovered several TV shows that changed my perspective. One was Soul Train, and the other was <laughs> William F. Buckley Jr., and uh, then there was the McLaughlin group, and it? And for some reason, you know, on a hot afternoon when you was tired of playing, I would go in and I would watch William F. Buckley talk about freedom and liberty and the libertarian ideas. And it struck me early that that there was an unfair quality to our government. And so, I mean, it's for a kid in the fifth grade to start seeing this. And it, it stuck in my mind. And, and I haven't been able to disprove it. So... And did Soul Train have any influence on your libertarianism as well? (laughs) What what Soul Train did is it showed me a culture outside the one that I was in. And, uh, you know, it it put things in a different perspective for me. There you go. And and that's just part of being open to new things, being open to new ideas, because most of us are not raised as libertarians. Uh, I did actually uh, interview a gubernatorial candidate, Toledo Jarvis, that actually was raised a libertarian, but it's pretty rare. Uh, Most people come into it in one way or another. I think you're the first person to ever mention Soul Train (laughs) as part of, as a small part of how he became a libertarian. Well, well, it, it, (laughs) it, you know, when you start opening your horizons and you start seeing people in a different light that, uh, you know, if you're living in an area like I was in a rural place where there were virtually no other races other than white it gives you an insight that you know there's a difference here there's a, there's a difference but it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing it's it, it's a good thing right so there's a difference in culture and it might not have been your culture but you watched it and you became fascinated by that and maybe that made you say well you know i, I can relate to all sorts of people even if on the surface right. it might not be who i think i would normally relate to right and for me, it's, it's always been a matter of, of trying to, you know, you know, live the life that, that people tell you, you, you know, that, that your, your principles tell you you ought to live. You know, if you're a Christian and you grow up and you believe in Jesus and Jesus says everyone's equal and you see all these examples of Jesus treating people that everyone else considered to be bad in, in respect. And that's what it comes down to. I may disagree with a person, but I need to respect them. And and that's what it all comes down to. No matter what your beliefs are, you need to respect people who disagree with you or you'll never grow as a person. Right. Uh, you already mentioned uh, your motivation for running for state rep. Uh, so wh- why did you get involved in this congressional race? It's corruption. I mean, 
you look at all the laws that are passed that are intended to help people, and they don't. And and it's all because of money. It all comes down to the dollars and cents. And, and all of these politicians go to Washington, men of ordinary means and women of ordinary means, and they come home filthy rich. And, and you look at our debt level, it is a moral outrage that we would leave the next generation with $21 trillion worth of debt. Your generation. And this is something that a lot of people in my generation who gained power have done to your generation and are going to do it to the next generation. Right. They've gone after your children. Now they're going after your grandchildren. And it's if it goes on unabated, eventually our enemies will quit buying our paper and all of a sudden you're dealing with hyperinflation. And uh, what has the response to your campaign been out there um, when you're talking to sort of non-libertarians, whether it's Democrats or Republicans or maybe just independents or people that don't really hold a political philosophy? What is the response to the, the type of things that you're saying, the type of things you've been saying here? Well, the, the Republicans and Democrats, neither one, can deny what they're doing to this country. They can't deny that they run up debt. They can't deny that they sent our young people off to die in fruitless wars. And the response has been positive. And when I talk to uh, law enforcement, I say, you know, sheriffs make good money, but in the state of Tennessee, sheriff's deputies actually qualify for free school lunch programs. That's how low they're paid. My state is the worst state in the union to be a police officer in. And then you have all these politicians that say they're heroes. Well, why do they, why do they treat them that way? You know, and, and the same is true why, for military. Why is it the worst state to be a police officer in? Why, why do you say that? Uh, pay scale and just in terms of the uh, compensation and, and that sort of yeah, thing and that sort of thing and you know Tennessee uh, my district especially is a very rural district and so for police you know the sheriff seem to be doing really well but the ordinary cop on the street doesn't and I don't think that's right I and I think there ought to be openness and I think everything everything ought to, ought to be uh, you know given to the light you know show us how much your police make show us how much your sheriffs make show us your budget and where the money goes everything we had we had a sunshine law in tennessee that said everything was done out in the open well the republicans and democrats got rid of it i think it ought to come back and i think it ought to be expanded to every level of government show me show me the books transparency everything don't don't say you can't say this or you can't see this that that this is security or secrecy because that's where people hide the things they do wrong Oh, do you think there's any chance? I mean, obviously, it's very difficult running running as a libertarian, as a third party, as someone who's not supported by the major parties, who have the deep pockets, who have the political connections, who don't want to hear other voices, who don't want your voice in there. So are, are you able, do you think, to get any traction uh, in terms of maybe getting in, into a debate, getting media coverage? Have you made any headway on that front? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I've made headway with the people. As far as media coverage, not yet. But well, I you're think on Lions of Liberty coming. Live right now. That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> so for me... The struggle is the people. Um, you know, I don't. I'm not really motivated by money because, let's face it, eh, how many pair of pants can you own? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, certain, I have like three. I mean, at, at and they're all here with point, me in New Orleans. So. Right. So at a certain <laughs> point, you have to stop and say, "What's most important?" Well, I don't care about money. I really don't. I, I'm one of those rare guys that I don't want to be rich because I know what it takes to be rich, and I know what kind of person you have to be to get rich. And I know that you can obsess your whole life with getting rich and never live life. And so I've tried that. I mean, I used to work 60, 70 hours a week. And I came to find out that money isn't everything. You know, so I've had a couple of things that happened to me in my life that, that bring things into perspective. 
You know, uh, I worked my way through college running barges on the river. And uh, that was a real tough summer job. And one night we were out in the middle of nowhere and the boat uh, had an accident. And I went out to knock the boat away from the barges and almost got killed. Wow. And so that showed me that life is uncertain, that, that you should not wait your whole life to do the things that you want to do. And I said, well, now's the time for me to stand up if there is a time. Especially if you're passionate about something because you, like you said, you don't know when that chance will be gone. Your chance is now. We're here. We're breathing now. Mm -hmm. So if you have something you want to do, if you have something you're passionate about, there's no reason not to do it. That's how I started this podcast. I knew I I, I wanted to hear a podcast. It wasn't out there, the one I wanted to hear. So I created it. I didn't know what I was doing. But here we are now, almost five years later, doing live interviews at the uh, the Libertarian National Convention. So How many many politicians have you heard stand up and say, the military are our American heroes, right? Yeah, all, you realize, almost all of them. Did you realize that a private who has a family qualifies for food stamps? Oh. So we'll spend billions of dollars on weapons. Mm-hmm. We'll spend billions of dollars on intricate systems to, to protect us. But yet the people who actually have to put their feet on the ground and go out and make things happen, they're paid horribly. You know, And why are we in 160 different countries? We're supporting brutal dictators who brutalize their people, who destroy their people's rights, and we call ourselves a land of freedom and liberty. And those are our principles, yet our actions don't match our principles. Well, David, uh, your passion certainly uh, you know, comes across, and I think that's going to come across uh, to your constituency, to the people you're out there talking to. One thing before we wrap up here i got to point out on your little badge here. It's really interesting. Uh, you live in uh, White House, Tennessee, is, is the, your hometown. Yes. And you told me as well, what's the name of the street you live on? I live on Pennsylvania Avenue. If that's not the makings of a future president, I mean, I, I don't <laughs> no, know what it is. No, 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 no. I don't want that job. Well, we'll start one at a time. We'll start with Congress, and we'll see where it goes from there. How about that? That would be fine. David Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate you, your sir. time. Appreciate best of luck with your campaign. All right, bye-bye. All right, we are live here at the Libertarian National Convention. I am currently with Ms. Jaletta Jarvis, candidate for governor of New Hampshire. Pleasure to meet you, Jaletta. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. All right, so uh, how did this all start for you? How did you get involved in libertarianism? How did you end up here? Give us the, uh, you're probably talking about it for hours like most libertarians, <laughs> but maybe give us the elevator speech version. How did you first get interested in the ideas of liberty? I've actually been a libertarian for um, all my life, actually. My parents, uh, told me that uh, you shouldn't let anybody else make decisions for you. You have to make the decision for yourself. Dangerous thing for a parent to tell a child. I know. <laughs> I know. My parents used to tell me uh, that don't come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions. You know, don't, don't just complain about things. I know that that's not always the libertarian way, well. but we... Uh, <laughs> The, the whole goal was to always find a way to fix the problems. And um, I had the pleasure of my aunt marrying the brother of a wonderful woman named Carla Howell, who was a libertarian who ran for office in Massachusetts. And so back in high school, I would sit around the table and listen to her talk about what the Libertarian Party did, what they were for. Uh, that was back in the days when she was trying to promote in Massachusetts the... Uh, the ability for the LGBTQ uh, organization uh, to be allowed to get married, um, and no one else was platforming on that until after she did, of course, and then the Democrats took it and ran with it, and hey, it got passed, so that was a success. Uh, But yeah, so that's really where it started. That's where I found out about the Libertarian Party, that it was an actual 
political organization. So that's how I really got involved with them. So you basically grew up a libertarian. That's pretty rare. You don't usually hear that when I do these interviews. Usually it's someone read Atlas Shrugged or they heard Ron Paul. Nope. Not that many people were actually raised libertarians. So what was that like for you? Were, did you, were there other libertarians that were, uh, you know, that you knew growing up? Like what were your no, classmates like? I really didn't know. I, I grew up in a state that uh, obviously New Hampshire, very independent state. Right. We all promote that that live free or die mentality where we are individuals, we are independents. The largest voting bloc in New Hampshire are the independent voters who don't believe in voting for party. They believe in voting for candidates and they want a candidate who's going to stand for the ideals that they themselves feel personally strong for. And so it really wasn't a party thing for me growing up. It was a, this is the way things are supposed to be. The constitution says that we have the right to be free. Uh, We have the right to be represented fairly. We have the right to uh, any representation on taxation. We have the right to um, have our ideals heard and known. And in a state like New Hampshire, where we have 400 members of the state Congress, we have a very high rate of, or low rate, I guess you could say, of representative to actual voter. Right, right. And that, that allows a group like the Free State Project to come in and actually influence elections, actually get people in the state house with such a, a small like, voter base that they have to influence. Um, they do, actually. But most of the Free State Project people who have come over have actually come and joined the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. Actually, most of them are Republicans. Um, we do have members of the Free State Project who are in the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire. The three people that we had in the state house as Libertarians, not a single one of them are actual Free State. They were all born in New Hampshire, which shows that New Hampshire is already a very free state. So obviously you chose the path of joining the Libertarian Party and running through there. Why did you see that as the better path for you as opposed to perhaps the easier path if you had tried to run as a Republican or as a Democrat? Why did you decide to take the Libertarian Party as your political pathway here? It absolutely would have been easier to run as a Republican or Democrat. Ballot access would have been simpler. All of it would have been simpler. And I've had members of both parties say, hey, you're an incredibly electable candidate. We love what you stand for. Would you consider switching teams and coming to us? And I say, you know what? I'm sorry, but the reason I joined the Libertarian Party is they are the party of principle, and I am a principled person, and I don't believe in uh, faking who I am to anyone. I want people to know what I stand for, who I stand for, and why I stand for it. So I choose to run as who I am, which is a libertarian, promote those ideals, that ideal of freedom and liberty for every individual, that we represent the minority of one which is the you know smallest minority you can get to and i believe that that's an important thing i want i don't want to fake who i am and why did you decide to specifically run for for governor because the governor's office i believe needs to be someone who is principled somebody who can actually jump up there and say no we're, we're not going to pass that bill, or yes, we are going to pass this bill, or who can stand and say to Congress or to the Senate uh, at the state level, yes, I see that that bill's coming, but I really want you to take a second look at it. I see the governor's office as that last defense of the people in in the fight for their independence and freedom. Because you do have that veto power if you, you do have governor. that veto power, right. power yes. 
So how do you see this unfolding? Obviously, um, you know, it's usually a Democrat or Republican that ends up winning that office. So do you think you actually have a chance to make some headway and actually maybe get into debates, actually be taken seriously by the voting public as as an actual candidate they can actually vote for and think that they might actually win? I think the people are ready to see somebody from outside. The people are tired of seeing this duopoly control of... Yeah, it's a politician versus a politician. The 80, uh, over 80 percent of the people in the whole country don't trust politicians. They are completely distrustful. Over 55 percent of people polled said that anybody other than a politician could do a better job in that in that position than an actual politician. People do not trust politicians. So having somebody who is outside of the political sphere, I am not a politician. I never will be a politician. I want to be elected governor, but I refuse to be a politician in the process. I am one of the people. I will continue to be one of the people. And I think that that's an important part of being in the governor's office. Is this the first time you've run for office then? This is not the first time I've run. I ran as an independent before. Um, Didn't make it on the ballot because of the ballot access rules. I had people, unfortunately, sign their names in green ink. Those got thrown away. (laughs) No green ink is allowed? That was an immediate toss out? That was a toss out, yeah. I should really toss my green pen, though. I've been signing stuff everywhere. Does that make it legally invalid? I walk around with a purple pen. Uh, (laughs) That's more fun. I love purple, and I have a purple pen. I can't sign anything with it. Uh, It's it's completely not legal. Um, I also had an entire street of people who had lived on that street for decades. Multiple people in the house all signed my petition, but from the time that they had registered to the time that they signed the the, the ballot access right. nomination, the addresses had changed one number. So if you signed up at 25 Morgan Street, your address was now 26 Morgan Street, and so the entire street was thrown away. That's over 300 people's signatures that were thrown away, and that brought me down, along with the green ink things, um, brought me down to under the 3,000 signatures that I needed to have so I didn't make it on the ballot. Is ballot access a little bit easier with the Libertarian Party just because you have a little bit of structure and there's people that are able to rally you and help you get those signatures as opposed to when you're an independent? Well, um, no. The access is exactly the same for anyone who I, is I know the rules outside. are the same, but yep. I mean, just in terms of getting people to help you collect signatures and that sort of thing. Well, what happened was the Libertarian Party, National Party, came in and brought in some people to go around and do signatures mm-hmm. for the party. And I was doing it all myself with a small group right. of individuals. And because I didn't make it on the ballot, I took all my supporters and I said, please vote for the person who's running as a libertarian so that we can have ballot access. And then that way I'll run next year. I promise if you vote for him, I will run next year as a libertarian because that's who I am. And and I will be on the ballot that way. And so almost all of them voted for him, though I did still have some write-ins just because they, they... really wanted to see me on there. I told them, please don't do this. But they did it anyways. I <laughs> uh, appreciate you all you so much. <laughs> but um, but we managed to get ballot access. So this year, no signatures. I am on that's the great. ballot, guaranteed already. And, and that's got to be such a time suck normally that you don't have to worry yes. about now. You can actually just focus on your message, focus on right. connecting with people, meeting people. So what kind of response have you been getting on the campaign trail? What kind of uh, issues are you, are you able to connect to, with voters with? Well, I hold a live, a Facebook live, 
live Q&A session every single Thursday at 7 p.m. And I've had a lot of participation from wonderful people who come on there and want to ask me their questions, who want to talk about issues, want to hear from me. And then there are people who will watch the video afterwards and send me private messages. This is, you know, you talked about this. I want to know your opinion on this or what do you think about this part of that issue? And and I have a lot of um, word of mouth where people really feel strongly about my campaign and then they want to pass it on. So then they want me to come and visit them at meet the candidate events held in their homes. And I will come out and they'll have like 10, 15, 20 people show up at their house wow. so that I can talk to them right. individually and talk to them and, and they can see the body language. That's easier from see, knocking on every single door. It is a little right? easier than knocking on every door, especially when um, those those voter lists cost over $8,000, and wow. as a true grassroots campaign where every single donation goes towards supporting this campaign, all of my staff members are all volunteer. Not not a single one of them takes money from so my is campaign. So is it the state that charges you that for that list? Yes, the state charges for that list. Because that's, I mean, that just seems like just another barrier that's put there for to suppress third parties, suppress independent candidates. Obviously, the Democrats... Democrats and Republicans can cough that up no problem. Somebody yeah. like you, that's a major chunk of money. It is a major chunk of money. So we do not purchase it. We are have to depend on just going to the doors and hoping that people <laughs> on the other side of that door are receptive. Though I can tell you that I go out and I door knock myself. I go out and I canvas. And I have told people, hi, my name is Gilletta Jarvis. I'm running for governor. And Wait, wait, wait. You're running for governor. You're not here representing Why are you somebody. at my house? What's and happening? I say, no, no, I'm running for governor, and I believe it's important for you to actually meet me yourself. And I've had people say, well, gosh, if you're brave enough to come to my door, I'm brave enough to vote for you. Nice. So in it, I don't know what party they're from, but, hey, I, I don't care what party you're from. So, uh, Gilletta, for you, what are the issues that motivate you the most? Obviously, it's a lot of work campaigning. Yes, it is. It's a lot of work, as we said, you know, getting voter lists, trying to uh, campaign, um, knocking door to door like you've been doing. What motivates you to do this? What are, are there specific issues that really, like, you know, fire you up, that really get you emotional, that say, I have to continue doing this, even though I'm tired today, even though I, I might be hungry, I have, I have to get to 20 more houses tonight? What, what keeps you doing that? Well, I think that our government needs to be more transparent. We have a big issue with hiding things under the cracks and calling them something different so we don't have to report them. For example, we talk about the fact that we had a budget surplus, but we don't talk about the fact that in reality, we have a $5.1 billion deficit in regards to the uh, state retirement program. But because it's listed under something else, we don't have to report it as part of our budget. And we keep saying that we are, we are, haven't we have a grip on that we're already working on it but when we started this program to work on it we were at 2.5 billion dollars in deficit and now we're at 5.1 so to me the math doesn't add up on right. fixing the problem um i also believe that our education funding is so is sorely lacking we have a huge problem with some towns uh needing forty thousand dollars per student to put them through a, a public education. Um, I'm and sure that's more than a lot of Ivy League universities cost. Exactly. And I didn't high. pay that much to go to college, and I went to an <laughs> Ivy League level college, mm -hmm. private. And um, so when you look at these statistics and you go to the U.S. news list that has all of the schools in every state that are rated, you know, and all the way down to honorable mention, the school that is in Wolfboro that needs $40,000 per student isn't even listed with an honorable mention. 
They're not even on there. And the school that is listed as the top in New Hampshire is a high school out of Nashua that charges $12,000 per student. So to me, when people say, oh, well, every time you cut education, you're killing our children's uh, educational options where you're you're killing their, their future. Well, obviously, it's not the money that right. is what's targeting their ability Perhaps to you're actually expanding their options. It may be if we actually um, add school choice. Well, and include in school choice homeschooling and charter schools and public education and uh, all the different options there are for education. Because right. public schools are not the only option. I mean, I just imagine what if a parent had that 40, not that I would advocate redistributing 40 grand to people, but just, just to think of what that money could do for a homeschooled child. How much, what, exactly. you wouldn't need $40,000, of they course. but need $40,000, but we allocate... $3,000 a year is what we think a homeschool student needs at the state level. That's what they consider to be your taxable write-off for a homeschool student. Right. But 40000 a year for a kid in a high school? Well, I'm looking. I mean, when I went to school, what I had what? Uh, the, there's a list in the front of your textbook that shows how many people have used that textbook before you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are at least 20 people before me, and that's one student a year. So what? My textbook had to be 20 years old, right? right? Um, and yet, in today's society, online education... I mean, that's where these these kids are going to go on to doing most of their work online. That that's just where we're moving as a society. But and a lot of their textbooks will be online. So what? How is it that it's costing more to go to school now than it was then when a lot of our options are online? Right. Um, so, uh, and it, it's not even looked at as a choice in New Hampshire. Online education, like there's that K through 12 schooling that's offered in, online in many states for free. It's not an option in New Hampshire. Um, Another thing that I would like to see addressed uh, as governor is the opioid crisis in New Hampshire. And I think that one great way to fix that is to legalize cannabis. It has been proven in study after study that cannabis use actually decreases addiction rates in all of the other uh, addictive drugs because the rate of addiction for cannabis is so much lower and no one has ever died of a cannabis overdose ever. And there's a lot of the same pain relief effects that people would normally, you know, start out <laughs> with an opioid that they're prescribed. And, uh, yeah. you know, they can get that effect from, from marijuana in a much safer way, in a way they're not going to get addicted right. in the way they would to an opioid, which often leads to them actually, you know, trans going from the prescription drug straight to heroin once they get off the prescription, once exactly, they can no longer get it. because they need that fix again. I mean, I, I look at a personal uh, experience where I went to my doctor and I said, all right, so here's the issue. And they said, well, we want to prescribe you a medication. I said, that's great. I will take a prescription medication, but I don't want it to be a narcotic or an opioid. I don't want it to be addictive in any way. And they said, absolutely. Okay. Here's your, your medication. And then they came back and said, well, you need to take a drug test in order to take this. Why do I need to take a drug test? And they said, well, because this is actually considered an opioid. And I went, (laughs) I just said that I don't want to be taking an opioid. And he said, oh, oh yeah, that's right. You did say that. But see, this is just the drug that we always prescribe. Well, you're not listening to your patient. This is the extent of the logic. Is, we always do is, it, so now we do it. This is it. Yeah, this is what we do, <laughs> so this is just what you're going to have to right. deal with. And another way to help reduce the opioid addiction rate is to fix the regulations that are keeping a lot of our mental health facilities and addiction treatment centers uh, closing. 
and or, or not expanding and we do not have access adequate access to mental health care and to treatment facilities in a lot of areas in the state people have to travel over an hour to get treatment uh, to get to a treatment facility and then when they close then what do they do so we have a lot of problems with that issue and a lot of it is due to regulations that need to be fixed um and I think that we also need to fix our fair elections. Our Constitution states that you need to be of this age to be qualified to run for office. You need to have lived in the area for this long. You need to not be a felon. And then we make laws on top of that that say, and you also need to get 3,000 signatures. It's you a need lot to of requirements. This. Yeah, why <laughs> are we just not following the Constitution and saying, this is what the Constitution says is the qualifications for this office? That's what you need, and as long as you can prove that you are those things, here's my license, here's my ID, here's whatever you need to prove that I am, I've lived here for seven years, or that I am not a felon, or I am really this age, that should be my <laughs> qualification. Right. And I think that those are things that I'd like to see supported um, from a a standpoint of supporting all of the people in New Hampshire to have access to uh, fair and e fair and equal rules and laws and guidelines in the state. Well, Jaletta, it seems you've got a really interesting campaign that a lot of libertarians, a lot of our audience, should really be able to get behind. So why don't you just give us the plug, uh, the plugs? How can people find out more about your campaign? How can they maybe contribute some money? Know, maybe <laughs> you can contribute at Jaletta Jarvis for NH. That's J I L L E T T A Jarvis J A R V I S. The number four. NH.com. We have a support tab on there where you can donate or you can volunteer. We accept in donations, check, cash, money orders. Uh, Cryptocurrency? You know, we, take, we take Bitcoin and we take credit card, obviously, through PayPal. And then, of course, you can also find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Jarvis for Gov, the number four. And... Uh, Come and visit me on Thursdays. It's from 7 to 8 p.m. Ask any questions you want. And that will continue even after the election, once elected, because I believe that the people have the right to talk to their governor without having to go through a staff member. All right. Well, Jaletta Jarvis, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking Thank with you. you. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. I am here at the LNC with uh, Cash Jackson, gubernatorial candidate uh, in Illinois, as well as his running mate, uh, his lieutenant governor, gubernatorial candidate. That's a hard word to say. Uh, Sanj Mohip. Cash, Sanj, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure. Thank you so things. much. All right. So is this, uh, how long have you guys been involved in the Libertarian Party? I guess I'll let you go, go first, Cash. How long have you been a Libertarian? How did you get involved in all this? Well, you know what? I'm relatively new to the party, and uh, I, I kind of begin looking into politics more as I was ending my naval career. So it was somewhere around 2014, 2015, whenever I first began kind of, you know, branching out and looking. So, you know what, I, I really don't think I'm as conservative or Republican uh, as I used to be. And uh, some of those things that kind of led me down that path was being out in Washington state whenever they legalized cannabis, uh, gay marriage was legal, and just kind of seeing, you know, that, that, that government doesn't necessarily be need to be as involved in our daily lives as what they are. And that was really something that resonated with me. And so I went to the first Kitsap County, uh, Washington chapter meeting that they had. And it was coincidentally my first libertarian meeting. And I just listened. And what I heard really resonated with me and uh, what people spoke about and their vision for liberty and what led them 
to being libertarians, I'm like, man, I just shook my head. I'm like, I've had it wrong for a very long time. So and, you just kind of learn from the example of others. You saw people around you sort of uh, doing libertarian things and talking about libertarianism, and you said, okay, well, this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. And Sanj, what about you? Uh, well, it's it's two different things, right? Libertarian and Libertarian Party. So right. I'll start with one. the first. Um, the whole big L, small yeah, L uh, yeah, yeah. debate. <laughs> the, f the first, I would say I... Uh, the opposite of cashier. I came from the left. I was a Democrat. I was an anti-war Democrat. I did a lot of anti-war acts. Which I don't think is a thing that exists anymore. Right. right. <laughs> so about you might have been the last one. When you left, it was over. <laughs> 20 years ago, I started looking into libertarianism, and I, I felt that uh, it made a lot of sense to me. And uh, so that was the end of the 90s. I started getting into libertarianism, and by... Uh, by the Ron Paul uh, first run, I was all in. You hear that name a lot when you ask people yeah. their story. So, uh, and also, I, I read a book from Mary Ruart, and that explained a lot of the questions I had. Mm -hmm. So, between those two, I was I was all in. I just wasn't part of the LP. So, uh, two years ago, I felt we had a really good opportunity to, to send someone out there with with some liberty messaging, and I got behind John McAfee for that. And, uh, you know, there were some good candidates that year. But I, I ended up uh, first with the National Party, getting on his campaign to work with that. That led me to my state party and local Chicago chapter. And I've been with them ever since. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, Cash, what inspired you to run for governor? Like you're saying, you haven't been involved in the party for that long. You haven't really been a philosophical libertarian for that long. So why did you decide to run for the top office in your state? Well, whenever I was uh, getting near the end of retirement in the Navy, it was... Uh kind of come around the summer of 2016, what I realized is that, number one, our incumbent, the Republican, uh, multimillionaire, very wealthy, and uh, kind of the, 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 the rumblings there within the Democratic Party about who may run, uh, one of those individuals is J.B. Pritzker. And as a matter of fact, we are sitting inside one of his hotels right now. Oh, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so one of my competitors owns this hotel, and I was kind of thinking that since the Libertarian Party was so kind to make a very large in-kind donation to his campaign, that, that maybe he would do the same for myself <laughs> and just reciprocate that. <laughs> um, it would be the nice thing to do, right? Right. But I realized, I'm like, you know what, with as much money as that guy has, obviously he stands a good chance of getting the nomination from the Democratic Party, and he did. And I also thought to myself, if those two guys get the nomination, in all likelihood, they're going to surpass all Governor... Uh, uh, elections you in U.S. Two history. multi-millionaires running against each other. Billionaires. 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 And I thought to myself, so number one, they're going to bring a lot of national media attention right. to this race. Okay. And so if I can create enough noise as a third-party candidate, and I don't even want to say I'm a third-party, right? Because in all honesty, we represent the majority of people. Um, but if when I we can, say third party, we almost accept their paradigm that we're just this other thing that's on the outside right. looking in. We're the majority, right? right? When If we're really honest with ourselves, we're the majority. And I knew that. But if I could uh, bring that message of liberty uh, that we know to be true and what that really looks like, and I could make enough noise in this race with national news media attention being brought to it, I knew I could help expand liberty all across not just the United States, but the world. And that's something that's really important to me. Well, I so guess that, that, uh, that's how I picked it. I was like, that race. That, that begs the question, I guess, then. And Sanj, feel free to chip in here, too. How do you guys plan to generate that noise? How do you plan to disrupt the uh, <laughs> the campaign of billionaires and get your voices heard and make you know get some attention here? 
You know what? What's our best ally are those two billionaires smearing each other mm-hmm. all day long. It's like people are starting to get sick of hearing about, you know, all the mudslinging between mm-hmm. the two of them. And uh, we know we're making an impact because they're coming after us now. They're, they're you know, they're, there's been some slight stuff in the media like uh, the smear to, campaigns have begun. Uh, <laughs> they're working on it. Uh, so, they're taking into your shady past. Very oh, yeah. So. Uh, we know that we're making an impact, and we know uh, grassroots got us here, and we're gonna—we're not gonna ignore the grassroots. So they're gonna help us, and we're gonna just keep plugging our message, and hopefully, you know, we get some donations to come in. And we know we're not gonna compete with billionaires on that. So we're coming up with some creative ways. What what are your biggest issues out on the campaign trail that you're able to connect with uh, sort of the the normal voter, if if you would will like the the people that would normally just only consider looking at a Democrat or Republican candidate? How are you able to interest them in your campaign? What sort of issues do you find resonate with people out there? Well, uh, the, the largest issues facing Illinois, number one, that everybody can agree upon, uh, is fiscally related. Uh, Illinois is just in the black, and uh, I don't know if we're we're to the point where we can never come back from that. But we're getting close. Uh, our, our, our pension system is just ridiculous. We, we hover in between 130 to $200 billion in unfunded pension liabilities. Our property taxes are some of the highest in the nation. I live in Lake County, Illinois. And of all counties in the United States, I know there's a bunch, I don't know how many, but we're 17th highest in the nation. And, and, it's, and, and if you look at all of our neighboring states, they're growing in population and we're shrinking. I think we lost, what, 30,000, an additional 30,000 people wow. last year. So our, our tax base is shrinking, uh, which in turn means our, our revenue stream is shrinking. And, uh, and why do I think the answer you're going to hear from a lot of the politicians is, well, we need to raise taxes then because rev- we need more revenue. Well, you know what? <laughs> That's what uh, old J.B. Pritzker, owner of the Hyatt Regency Hotel, is advocating for, a progressive tax, which would effectively raise taxes on anybody making more than $17,000 a year. <laughs> I mean, 17000 a, a year. That's very progressive, you might say. Very progressive. <laughs> I mean, we're going to progress ourselves into a deeper hole uh, the, the more that we align ourselves with these types of policies and, and just fiscal irresponsibility. And, of course, we are the party of fiscal responsibility. So that really, really um, just connects with voters right now. And, and that's really the, the biggest thing that we're facing. Right. Yeah, we're, we're losing people. I, Chicago is the only big metropolitan uh, area that's losing people that people are moving out so i mean and it's the the high taxes that's the main thing and now they're just going to raise taxes to to try and solve the problem of the high taxes that got us there it's a never-ending cycle never-ending people run from the taxes so we need more money so we raise the taxes and then and then they increase spending after they've increased what are you gonna do with all the money spending yeah and then they wonder why we're not making a dent on this. Right. So, yeah. As I'm sure you guys are discovering, I think in, in many ways running as a libertarian can probably be a thankless job in, in many ways. You're around there knocking on doors, uh, getting signatures. Uh, you really have to hit the pavement. So what is it that really inspires you? Like what actually really motivates you to do what you're doing? Uh, for me, it, it is um, you know the, the principles that I fought for in the military. Uh, that's what really drives me. I, I went through a very contested um, uh, divorce and custody proceedings. I really had to fight to be a dad and still do have to fight to be a father to my children. And when, when, when I realized how many constitutional rights were being violated inside 
just the family court system, that really opened up the doorway for me to look and examine every other aspect of our government. Right. And kind of the one of the faults of being in the military is we believe that, well, I'm in the military, I'm supporting and defending the Constitution, I'm doing my part. And then kind of putting the rest of the responsibility on people back home. Mm -hmm. And because I did that, I fell short. And I didn't realize how far gone my country was. And uh, I, I really believed in my heart that what men and women died for really meant something to me. And what I served for for 20 years really, really meant something to me. And I wanted nothing more than to uh, fulfill my oath, to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And what I realize is the greatest threat to freedom in this country is not in Afghanistan or in Russia or in China. Our greatest threat lies in Congress and in the General Assembly of our states. It's in the pen in the hand of a legislator who will legislate with, with no issue your constitutional rights away. Right. And, and that's what drives me. Sanj, what about you? What, what motivates you out there? Uh, you know, I was, I, I'm still feeling this. I, I felt very humble just being elected the lieutenant governor candidate. And uh, it just, that kind of energized me. And Just getting know, that support from your, your fellow libertarians. Yes, the, the delegation said, you're, you're the guy for the number two job. And that was very humbling for me. And I just, I use that and I travel the state and I talk to anyone who wants to listen. And, uh, you know, it's been great. And I'm not going to throw out the minority card, but I don't look like everyone else <laughs> in some of these towns. We're not brothers. <laughs> we are brothers. We're we brothers in liberty, right? Uh, but I like being able to talk to minorities, too, and say, you know, liberty is not just for, you know, one race. It's, it's not for just for us every, white dudes. Yeah, I, I don't say it like that, but I say, like, look at me. I'm I, not saying to take marketing <laughs> advice from me, all right? I just do a podcast. I just say, look at me. I'm doing this. And uh, I came from a very humble background and everything. And you guys can do it, too. So my whole running is to show others they can run for office, too. That's a big motivation for me. And you do have a little, uh, I think, a slogan you use uh, based on your last name. Do you uh, want to... <laughs> I, w I was using Get Mo Hip to Liberty. Hey, I, I'm in. I, I, I hashtag like it. that. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, why don't you just uh, plug all your, your, your websites, your campaigns. How can people, either in, in Illinois or not, you'll, you'll take help from libertarians all over yeah. the country, I'm sure. How can people find out more about your campaigns and uh, send you money, maybe? <laughs> uh, Cash2018.com. That'd be the best place to find me. I'm also on Facebook and on Instagram. That's Cash with a... Cash with a... K, okay. thank you so much for reminding me. <laughs> and, oh, I uh, wanted to plug, because we had one, too, and I didn't come up with it. I wish that I could. But because I'm running against uh, a billionaire and a multimillionaire, uh, I think it was John Matthew, maybe, that came up with, well, they might have the money, but we have the cash. Nice. <laughs> I like, I like it. it. I like it. Uh, and uh, you can find me at votemohip.com. That'll get you to all my social media, and you can make a donation there if you so choose. All right. Well, Cash Jackson. Awesome. Sanj Mohip, it's been a pleasure meeting you guys. Wish you guys the best of luck. Enjoy the rest of the convention. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thanks right. for having us on. All right, we are here live on Facebook once again. Uh, of course, my colleague John Oderman is here. He's uh, back, from, back from behind the camera. <laughs> and then uh, we've got a gubernatorial, libertarian gubernatorial candidate out of Colorado, Mr. Scott Helker. Thank you, sir. John, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. And uh, so uh, why don't we just start uh, at the beginning? How did you get involved in all this? Crazy libertarian stuff. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I used to be a Republican, and I couldn't be a Republican anymore. I had too many friends who were moderate Republicans and ran for office, and the first thing they do as soon as they realize your political bent was run somebody against you in the primaries. 
which just eats. When they realize you have principles of some kind, you mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a big problem. So I left. So what were you doing in there? Talking about crazy things like individual liberty and small government and uh, stuff like that, weird stuff like that? Yeah, well, the the modern Republicans are really libertarians. You know, they're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And that's who they were. And they were perfectly happy to let things be whatever they were so long as they had some liberty and stuff. But the conservative element of the party wouldn't do that. So I left. So what was the, was there a specific breaking point for you where you said, okay, I cannot be involved in, in the Republican Party anymore. I have to go to the Libertarian Party, which actually reflects my principles. Yeah. Um, it was more cumulative. And then, of course, like everybody else, this weird little old guy came on um, TV called Ron Paul. I've heard of him. Weird yeah. little old guy. <laughs> a, couple, a couple people have mentioned him. And, you know, you're looking at this guy and going, this is the most non-charismatic man I've ever listened to. You know, and I really like Ron, we, we apologize, Ron. We know you're watching. <laughs> but um, no, he was just, he was, he was so right. And what, what, what was it most about Ron Paul? Like, was there a specific, uh, you know, something he mentioned specifically, or was it just more his, 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 I'll say it, no fucks given attitude? Was it, <laughs> was it the, the famous Rudy Giuliani moment? That, that's, no, for me, that's what it was. He did an interview during one of the Republican conventions. And he was with students um, outside the convention. Mm-hmm. And he had them in the palm of his hand. But it was just this, we need liberty. And that was the whole message. And I can't say anything in one thing that moved me, but it was the whole, you know, we got to do something different. And I agreed with him. So. The whole package deal. So uh, when did you decide to run for governor? Have you run for other offices before? How long have you been involved no, in this stuff directly? never no. run for another First office. First time. First time. There was nobody running in Colorado as a libertarian for governor. And I made the decision that somebody should run and at least represent the party and get keep the message going. Because we gained so much when um, Gary Johnson ran in Colorado that to lose all that is a huge mistake. We got to keep it going. Keep the ball rolling. All right, so you, this, this is great talking about, you know, your journey, journey to liberty and running for governor. But I think the people at home Want to know about the beavers. Oh, oh right. yeah, that's right. I was supposed to ask about the beavers. Let's get right to the serious stuff. Let's talk about beavers. What's the deal with these beavers? I did a convention of water experts um, in Denver. It sounds really exciting. Oh, it was... So, sounds like almost as fun as what's going on in the, the convention hall uh, to our right here. The guys were all engineers, all PhDs who know the subject better than me. Mm-hmm. And I know a little bit. And so I got up and said, I love beavers. And honestly, Rod, you can see the twittering going. You know, it's like, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> and I know that because my wife was watching the Twitter feed. And so I did a four-minute speech. I had to wait for the next, my next stop. I did another four-minute speech. Halfway through the four-minute speech, I'm told by my wife, suddenly somebody pointed in, you know something? He makes a little sense. And that started everything for me because... The simple fact is reintroducing beavers is a very cheap way to raise the water levels and the whole volume of the Colorado River Basin, which affects everybody in the western part. Sounds of the like region. one of the most libertarian solutions. Possible. Doesn't it? I yeah. mean, I can let re- the beavers do the work. Start. We don't need the government. We have beavers. You don't have yes. to pay them. Beavers work for free. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. But we can raise the overall water volume in the watershed by a third to two-thirds. Wow. 
And that's not me. Those are the experts. Beavers are kind of like libertarians. They work for free. Uh, <laughs> they're constantly building something. Um, I don't know what else. That's all I got. I got. <laughs> but and the good thing about that is I got um, support from the um, uh, oh the uh, one of the environmental parties. They sent me stuff. The Green Party did, or no the or Sierra no? Club. Okay, okay. They sent me all the stuff saying how great I was, and I said, well, you know, support the idea of beavers. And they somehow interpreted that as, you know, nominate me for your candidate, you know, be the ah. uh, endorse me. And I knew they weren't going to do that. Right. But suddenly they got real cold as soon as I talked to them about that. Um, but I think they still support the idea of beavers. <laughs> they support the beavers. They're not sure about all the other wacky libertarian stuff you're out there talking yeah. about. But the beavers, uh, beavers were on board. We're on board. <laughs> uh, what, when you're out there on the campaign trail, other than the beaver thing, what sort of issues are, are you most passionate about talking about, and what you know what really fires you up and keeps you motivated to be out there? I know it's a grind to be on to be campaigning, especially in a third party where you're not you don't have those deep pockets, you don't have all the media attention just handed to you like the Democrats and Republicans do. So what keeps you going? Um, a multiple things because I'm an attorney. I studied governments, and one of the things that amazes me is that in the United States, the most progressive uh, cities are what they call strong mayor governments, which means that they're just an oligarchy. In Denver, Colorado, 14 people, 14, decide what 3 million people do. And they are also, at that point in time, if you're a person of color, um, you get to go to jail, uh, they'll shoot you, and you get a crap education system. Does not sound like a good deal. No. And if you walk over just where Jefferson County is, uh, they don't kill you, they don't send you to jail, and they don't give you a crap um, educational system. <laughs> so we got to do something to break up the oligarchy. I suggest that we make um, reinstitute a republic some checks and balances. The basic check and balance I want is to make the police chief an elected position. And if we do that in the strong mirror system, it'll go huge. For How, now they're, the they're just an appointed position now? And it's that's an something that the governor can change? You change the law, and then you say they have to do it. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's not an easy road. And there will be pushback because if the oligarchy is broken up, you mm -hmm. also break up the Democratic strongholds in those cities. And they can't rule or get the vote like they do now. And they're going to fight that tooth and nail. And especially if they realize that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So how, are, uh, how have you been finding been being able to try to make headway uh, in this race when you have the Democrats and Republicans who obviously have a stranglehold over the political system, a stranglehold over the, me stranglehold over the media? How are you able to get your voice in there and, and, and get your ideas out there and get your voice heard? I love beavers. It sounds crazy, but... Is, is that on your, your yard signs, your campaign signs? I, I love it. I mean, it gets my attention. You know? yeah. That's why and we're the, talking right now. You yeah, sold them on the beavers. For a strong um, mayoral government is all democracies end in tyranny. And everybody goes, what? That's a lie. And then you start talking to them about it, and they go, hey, maybe he's right. And hey, maybe... There is oppression from all the strong mayor governments across, you know, Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, mm -hmm. L.A., and Denver. Um, that seems to resonate. But you got to be a little, got to be a little out there. Yeah, well, you got to be willing to go. You know, I love beavers. You got to be out here to come to a, out there to come to a, a libertarian convention and uh, sit around yeah. talking to libertarians all day too. So I'm, I'm curious to ask you with. 
you know, really Colorado leading the way in legalizing marijuana. You know, what sort of uh, campaign uh, policy stance do you have on that? Do you, are you for legalizing all drugs? What sort of uh, platform are you putting forward? The same platform as Libertarian Party, which is basically legalize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, You're not going to Bob Barr us and say, well, marijuana, sure, but uh, no, cocaine and heroin, all that stuff, we got to we gotta keep that. That's bad. You know, the simple fact was until FDR came along, all that stuff was legal. Right. And we had no addiction problem. Right. We had no huge problem. If you give the people the option and the choice... I believe they'll make better decisions. Most people don't want to be addicted to something. Most yeah. people don't want to um, be, be so dependent on a drug. Most people don't want to overdose and die. Uh, it's the black market. That's what leads to these mm-hmm. things. So yeah. in, you know, even if you think all drugs are bad, many drugs are bad, and many drugs do have harmful effects. But pushing them to the black market, uh, as, as John knows well from uh, several years of hosting Felony Friday, all that does is make things worse in every, exactly. in every way imaginable. Yeah. No, that's the point. And um, it doesn't make anything better, so why do it? And even if we legalize it with the opium crisis, um, you know, instead of regulating and say the MDs can't, you know, be your drug pusher, we let them push it out there. And then we're shocked because people are, you know, and I, I'm an old guy, so I went through this in the 70s. In the 70s, they decided speed should be legal. And all the um, MDs could prescribe it, mainly for truckers and other people because it was a magic drug that would keep you awake. Yeah, they forgot how addictive it was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, um, you get your choices, but stop the pushing. You know, the MDs don't push it. The black market doesn't push it. You know, that's the better choice. You know, give people the choice. They may make the wrong choice, but it's their choice. Right on. Scott, I'm curious. Uh I have a feeling what the answer might be. <laughs> if you are elected governor somehow, if the uh, nearly impossible happens, it's definitely not impossible. Um, day one, what's the first thing that you have within the confines of the, the current powers that the governor would have? What's the first thing you would do? And is it beaver related? <laughs> it's not beaver related to begin with. That's maybe day two. We'll do the beavers. Um, the first day is basically putting a team together to run the government because you got you got to have the team there. And I would be, if I suddenly got elected, I would be working my tail off to put together a team to actually run everything. Get Lance here to be your, Lance being libertarian, can be your, your meme, meme guy. Yeah. yeah. No, but Chief that would memes. be the first one. The after that would be getting positioned people to properly say, okay, yes, we want beavers. How do we facilitate that and change the laws to facilitate right. it? We have a gentleman who swears he can put a program together that will show me all the laws that are the same or in conflict with each other. It's a computer program. Oh, wow. And I would pay him to do that and get rid of the repetitiveness and the conflicts, let the legislation figure out which one they want. But they got to choose one. Well, Scott, uh, before we sign off here, why don't you just tell everybody out there on Facebook, everybody that's going to be listening to this on the podcast, how can they find out more about your campaign? How can they get involved? Maybe send you some money for a, or maybe a, send you a beaver. Send, you a, send, you a <laughs> send beaver. a beaver. Just skip the money to send the beavers directly. <laughs> now I'll put them down in my creek where my dad lives. So. There you go. He but, accepts uh, the cash, crypto, and beavers. Right? Yes. Actually, I can't accept crypto. Yeah, things get a little tricky there. Yeah, no, the Secretary of State is redoing the... Um, the rules, and I hope before the end of the election, I'll become the first candidate to accept crypto in Colorado. Right. Cool. But they haven't changed the rules yet. Right, cool. Um, they can get me on Facebook at Helker for Governor. Um, that's basically where my web presence is. Okay. 
Um, it's not the world's greatest Facebook page because I'm not a huge fan, but that's where I do it. We, uh, we operate in the world we live in. That's where yeah. everybody's at. So that's where we got to be. And if they want to talk to me more directly and probably get an answer from me, um, just email me at helkerforgovernor, F-O-R, at gmail.com. All right. And, and uh, you'll be able to get a hold of me that way. And I'm much more responsive to emails than I am to Facebook, just to let you know up front. All right. Beavers, guys. Beavers <laughs> is the answer. Scott Helker, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank I wish you, you the best much. of luck with your campaign, all right? Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Lions of Liberty, we are back here live still at the LMC. I'm now here with a gentleman named Mr. Daniel Fishman. Daniel, pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks now, for having I, me on. I've been interviewing a lot of people over the last few days, a lot of people that are you know, running for positions within the Libertarian Party, running for chair, vice chair positions, uh, people running for Congress. You're running for uh, a pretty interesting position. That, that, I'll be honest, might not sound interesting on the surface, but it is for a Libertarian. So why don't you tell people what exactly you're running for? So I'm running for state auditor in the state of Massachusetts. And uh, one of the things I tell people all the time is that part of my challenge is to convince them that the race for auditor is a little bit sexy. And the reason why... <laughs> Making auditing sexy again. That's well, your, yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we, uh, well, so my campaign is pretty simple. The referee shouldn't be wearing a jersey of one of the two teams. Right. Auditor is the one position. You would never want to elect a Republican to audit a Republican governor, which we have in Massachusetts. You would never want to elect a Democrat to audit a Democratic state house, which we have in Massachusetts. And, and Democrats w might not want a Republican to be auditing their government, too. Exactly so. right. It's both of those things. Well, and in particular, the woman that I'm running against, the current incumbent auditor, has been using her power to promote democratic policies by allowing democratic agencies to get away with crazy spending. And so I actually have the luxury of being in a race where I can appeal to both sides and say, if you think not enough money is being spent on the issues that you're concerned about, I'm going to fix that without raising taxes because I'm going to get rid of all of the waste and all the political patronage that's happening in there. If you think that too much money is being wasted and you're paying too much taxes, I'm going to expose that waste. We're going to make a difference. And the thing about it is, to my particular skill set. I'm a computer scientist. You can look me up on Google. You can see the things that I've done. Um, I'm going to put all the books online all the time. Okay? I'm not afraid to quote Republicans. I'm not afraid to quote Democrats. Louis Brandeis, uh, the Democrat who was on the Supreme Court, said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. By putting all the books online all the time, by exposing what's happening, I think I'm going to do more than I've done in my past three races where I tried to bring libertarian values and tell people we can limit the size of government. People don't understand what the size of government is. If we can expose that, if we can show them what's really happening and how much money is going around, maybe we can make a difference. So how much are you incorporating sort of the, the messaging of libertarian ideas into your campaign? And how much, how much of it is more focused on, look, I'm not partisan. I'm, I'm independent. I'm, I'm not concerned with a Democrat or Republican. You can trust me, to be honest. Is there, or is it sort of a mix? Right. So the auditor actually only has one power, and that is the power to expose what is happening in government can't take to demand action. accounting. Exactly right. And I say, listen, this can be your chance to see what libertarians are really right, because chances are you don't know that much about us. And I talk about this all the time. I say, and I've run for office a few times in Massachusetts, so I have reasonable name recognition. And uh, I'm endorsed by Bill Weld, who, of course, you know, was reelected with 70.7 percent in the state of Massachusetts. And so on my all my campaign materials is a picture of him and I shaking hands. People are like, oh, Bill Weld, everybody still knows him and loves him. So we're getting the message out there. But I'm able to tell people and say, you know, you may not know what libertarianism is, but the one thing you know about us is that we are stand for being fiscal hawks. Okay? We watch every penny coming in, every penny coming out. Now, if you want me to do that with the money that the government's taking from you through taxation, 
then that'll make a difference. And so I'm able to talk about some liberty issues, about the idea that, uh, again, to requote Bill Weld, there's no such thing as government money. There's only taxpayer money. You say that to people, they're like, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So what, what kind of response are you getting out there uh, from your, your constituents? Are they resonating with your message? Are, are people, is, there, is there sort of an atmosphere that people are fed up with the corruption of the Democrat and Republican parties? Is there really a window opening um, for not just for yourself, but for more of these ideas to really seep in in Massachusetts specifically? Absolutely. So Massachusetts is a different state than anywhere else. We frequently refer to California as that corrupt red state to the, uh, on the West Coast because compared to us, they really are. We have not elected a Republican in the general election since 1994 okay, to, uh, to a federal office. We have uh, the race that I'm running for, Auditor, has been held by a Democrat since 1930. If Republicans won every race in Massachusetts for state house that they're running in, they could not sustain a Charlie Baker veto. Two-thirds of the Democrats are running unopposed in the state of Massachusetts. In that light, I actually am finding a tremendous amount of traction because both parties are fractured. Okay, The Republicans are, the Massachusetts Republicans, and Donald Trump got a million votes Okay, now it was only 33%, but he got a million votes in Massachusetts. Hillary obviously got 2 million votes. However, she only won the primary by 20,000 votes. And a lot of those Bernie people are mad because they feel like Hillary cheated, not just everywhere else, but in Massachusetts. And as an example of that, in the busiest polling place in the state of Massachusetts, it would be illegal to have campaign signs in. It would be illegal to have a candidate in the polling place. But it wasn't illegal for Bill Clinton to go in there and stand, hey, how's it going to vote for my wife? A lot of Bernie Kratz still mad about that. Suzanne Bump was an ardent supporter of Hillary. So we're going there. I'm going out. I'm talking to Republican town committees. I'm talking to Oaks, to, uh, to Elks. But I'm also talking to the Our Revolution uh, people, the Bernie Sanders people. And I say, listen, you guys are upset about the corruption that's going on. This is something that everybody ought to be able to agree on. You know, if we want to get together, if we want to end tribalism, we end it by finding the one thing that is our common ground. Common ground ought to be the money that you and I make belongs to us first. Yeah, what's kind of great about your campaign here is you can discuss libertarian ideas with people while you're out there, but you can also say, look, these aren't coming into play if you elect me. Right. You know, th- I'm here to be honest and to expose the corruption of these two parties, and, and that's my take on it. And maybe later, if, you, if you, you see I did a good job with it, if you see I did expose a lot of this corruption, maybe you will listen to some of my, my ideas now. I think that's an approach that libertarians need to take more and more often is – First making friends, first making friends over some kind of common ground, whatever exactly. that may be. And then once you, you, know, you make that relationship with people, then they're willing to listen to you. Right. Maybe once you do expose some corruption in the parties that they're already sick of, maybe then they do listen to your ideas and we can spread these ideas a little bit further. I think it's going to happen. All right, Dan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. we got some chair votes. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. we got to go in for but it's right. been a blast. Thanks, Thanks for Actually, before we let you go, why don't you tell everybody where they can learn more about your campaign? Please, and, and you can make a real difference in my campaign, www.auditmassachusetts.com. We have a transition program going right now where people are getting hooked in. We have signs, guerrilla marketing, two-by-two stickers, auditmassachusetts.com. People are coming to the website. We need volunteers who can do stuff for us. If you can write a paragraph, you can write a letter to the editor, something like that, we need you to sign up, auditmassachusetts.com. Thanks. Right. Daniel Fishman, pleasure. Thanks, Take brother. Care. I'm live here with Martin Cowan. He's running for Congress out of Georgia as a libertarian. Martin, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm delighted to be here. Martin Cowan, Congressional candidate in Georgia Districts 13. All right. And uh, Martin, just to start off, how did you get involved in all this libertarian stuff? It's a little weird. I like to say that I'm the oldest libertarian in Georgia. And what I mean by that is that I attended the 1972 Georgia State Libertarian Party Convention. And that was the first. The Libertarian Party was created in 1971 in Colorado. And then the Georgia Party 
came into existence later, and our first convention was within a year of the creation of the whole party. So I've been around for 46 years. Uh, what was it that first inspired you to become interested in the ideas of liberty and the Libertarian Party? Obviously, most of us are uh, raised believing that there's Democrats, there's the left, there's Republicans, there's the right, and uh, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. So what drove you, like many of us, to seek this other path, this other way of thinking, and this other way of looking at the interactions between government and individuals? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, 60% or more of those of us who are libertarians started with Ayn Rand. You hear that name a lot. Uh, so so in, when I was in college, I read, I read Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, and those ideas really took off with me. And so that was my first introduction to um, the libertarian ideas. And, and, of course, there's some separation these days between the so-called objectivists and the libertarians. Uh, but you know, I regard myself as what I say is a pure libertarian. But no, no matter what libertarian you talk to, he'd say he's a pure libertarian. But I come from the objectivist tradition. Okay. So uh, what, what led you to take the political path? You know, a, lo a lot of people are, you know, they believe in libertarian ideas. They like to talk about libertarian ideas. They might share some Ron Paul videos around there and get a conversation going. But there's a lot of people that kind of reject the political process as a way of, of communicating and it was, as a way of doing things. So why did you get so involved in the political aspect of this? Well, in 2016, uh, I had just retired. I was the, the associate probate judge in Clayton County, Georgia. And in December of 2015, I retired from that job. And I immediately started writing a book because I had an inspiration. And my book, which I uh, wrote, is called Fabian Libertarianism, 100 Years to Freedom. And I tabled that book at the Orlando Convention in 2016. And anyone that's at the LNC here, I believe you got some copies over here. I got copies okay, I'm giving so away for free in exchange for your email. If you're in the convention hall right now watching this on your phone, instead of paying attention, you can come on over and grab one of these books. I'd love to give it to you in exchange for your email. So anyway, I wrote that book, and this book is sort of a blueprint for how I think uh, we, how I think we need to proceed to change the world. And I, I may have mentioned the subtitles, 100 Years to Freedom. And my point is, is that we've got to be apply gradualism, work on it, and we're going to have to work on it for a long time. And I'm not saying from 1972 to now, which is 46 years. Note, though, that's 46% of 100 years. I think we have to start now and look to another 100 years. So I may not make it to the 100 years, but I'm going to work on it in the meantime. There is sort of a big debate. You know, we saw in the uh, the chair debate last night and the vice chair debate, there, there seems to be a little bit of a, a conflict of ideas between having a radical message and trying and trying to put that out there, saying things like legalize cocaine, um, legalize um, automatic weapons and stuff like that, versus um, sort of the, the more pragmatic approach and sort of guiding people and easing people into the ideas. Obviously, you have this idea of the, this 100-year plan. So do you favor that more gradual approach or do you favor a radical message that still accepts that it's going to take take time to actually you know implement this uh, i have a pro uh, gradualism is my theme and we have a lot of people in the convention today that have a, a ticket on them that says taxation is theft and i'd be happy to i love talking with uh, libertarians about that and the meaning of that but that's not what you need to say to a <sighs> keep talking we're good i don't know what happens when a phone call comes that, that that's that's <laughs> just uh, that's not what you say <laughs> to an ordinary citizen um so I, I don't think you the first say, time it's happened. <laughs> I, I don't think you say that to an ordinary citizen because they're going to write you off as a complete uh, lunatic. We, you, we have to do it incrementally. So I would say taxation is theft to you. I, I would right. agree with that. But to a public person, I'm going to say, let's reduce taxation by 1% this year. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you do that enough times, 
After 100 years, it gets mighty close to zero. Oh, you do 1% a year for 100 years, you've got 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> Went from 100 to zero. So, so gradualism uh, is the key. So why did you decide to run for Congress right now? Tell us a little bit about your race and your opponents. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, now, in Georgia in 2016, we had a lawsuit. Uh, which the Green Party and the Constitution Party filed against our Secretary of State, saying that the 50,000 signature requirement for president was unconstitutional. And the federal judge said, you're right, it is unconstitutional. The real number is 7,500. Now, where he came up with that number, I don't know, but I'm glad he did, because the number for me to get on the ballot is 20,188. So I have filed a lawsuit among uh, the the Georgia party has filed it, too. And then we have three other individual plaintiffs. And our claim is, is that that president says that 7,500 is the maximum signature requirement. My 20,000 is therefore unconstitutional. It can't be more. It can't be so much more than the 7,500 statewide requirement. So I think we're going to win that lawsuit. It'll get reduced to 7,500 at least, maybe one-fourteenth of 7,500 because they're 14th congressional districts, and maybe totally wiped out because it's unconstitutional. The whole thing, the whole system is designed to keep me and others like me off sure, the ballot. Sure, that's just another way that the uh, the powers that be, so to speak, uh, try to sort of hamper third parties and, and hamper independent voices that try to get involved in this political process. Uh, so what's your plan of attack here in, in reaching your constituency, in, in getting your voice to people? Are you uh, going door to door? Are you kissing babies, shaking hands? How are you doing this, Martin? I am going door to door. I do have that 20,000 signature requirement and uh, I am going door to door with, with co- some of my fellow colleagues. I overlap uh, in Georgia with a, a great man named Damon Kennedy. He's running for the state house. Uh, with the, it's called the General Assembly. So we have overlapping districts. He has a signature requirement of about 1,800 and minus 20,000. But we're going door to door together. Uh, and we're both getting a signature at the same time, mine and his. And so we've been doing that for the last six months. And boy, I can tell you that is hard work. Very hard and very unpleasant. What are uh, the biggest issues that, well, that, that really drive you? What makes you passionate about running for office, about really getting out there and sharing these ideas with people? What keeps you going? The federal government does two things, war and welfare. I'm opposed to both, but my main theme is war. I say to, I say to people to come to my table, I, I talk to them about the million Iraqis who've been killed since 2003. I talk to them about the 100,000 bombs that Obama dropped during his time. And I speculate, well, how many people were killed per bomb? Ten per person per per bomb? That's a million people. It might be a low number, but you're you're being generous here. Yeah. So we have killed millions, millions of people in the last 10, or I like to say since the 15 years since my opponent's been in office. And he said nothing about the millions dead. And so what I argue is, is that can you imagine what it would be like if someone other than an American wrote our history 50 years from now? What are, how are we going to be described? There's some really bad words that could be used to describe what we're doing today. And I oppose it, and I want my supporters to oppose it. And, you know, the only thing we can do is oppose it, and then we won't be tagged with the, you know, the murderer uh, tag, which I think we may deserve. Do you find this message resonates with people? Obviously, you're very passionate about this. I am very passionate about it. It is a little difficult. You know, I, I'm old enough, and, and I was I, from the Vietnam era, and, and I can remember vividly, vividly the anti-war movement is very, very strong. And I have to confess that I personally was not anti-war. I stood on the signs and watched my f- friends get their heads beaten with sticks and arrested. I, I didn't do that because I didn't have the courage of my convictions. But we had a real anti-war movement in, in the 70s, and I'd like to see that happen again. And I'm disappointed that it's not happening now. And one of the reasons I came to New Orleans is to try to figure out 
Why? Why don't we understand that this is a serious problem? And why aren't we opposed to uh, this mass murder that's going on all across the country, uh, world? Sure. I mean, we were, we were discussing a little bit before the interview that there does not seem to even be an anti-war movement anymore. It used to be way back in the day on the left was associated with, with being against war. That went away uh, with Obama, for sure. It was a little bit there before Bush. And now, I hate to say it, I mean, I know if you talk to people one-on-one around here, everyone is anti-war, but it doesn't seem to be the overriding message. And to me, that is what brought me into libertarianism as well. It was Ron Paul discussing all the injustices overseas, like you're talking about, all the people killed with the money that's taken out of my paycheck to see it used for such horrible things. So that's what that's what makes me passionate as well. So how do we make that message more a part of the Libertarian Party? To me, it should be one of the top three things that are discussed all the time. Well, as I mentioned, one of the things I'm doing here is collecting emails for my email list. And what I'm hoping to do is to create like a monthly newsletter, probably not more because people don't like to be bothered too often, but sh- sh- tell them what has just happened in the last month about in terms of death and destruction. Uh, one of the great horrors that's going on as we speak is the Yemeni civil war. And it's, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is basically attacking Yemen for reasons which are absolutely unclear to me. And America is totally supporting that. And France and Britain are totally supporting that. And they're just bombing and bombing and bombing and killing and starving children every day in Yemen. And we Americans care nothing about it. Nothing about it. It's it's incomprehensible to me. Well, Martin, I really appreciate speaking to you. Before I let you go here, why don't you tell everybody how they can find out more about your campaign, how they can help, how they can get involved, maybe even send you some money. Right. <laughs> uh, now, listen, I, I can't accept more than $2,700 as a, as a contribution because the Fed don't let me have any more than that. So anything less than that, I would greatly appreciate. <laughs> and you can, do, I have a, you can do that on PayPal, and you can find my PayPal on at CowanForCongress.com, CowanForCongress.com. I do have a Facebook page, Cowan for Congress. And I would love for you to uh, share that, look at that, like it, so that I can have uh, followers there. And I do have a Twitter, at ML Cowan, at ML Cowan, C-O-W-E-N. And I, and I do twit- tweet a lot about the Yemeni war and all these other terrible war things. So uh, I'd love for people to get in touch with me. Thanks. Well, Martin, it's been a pleasure. Again, we can never have enough anti-war voices and passionate voices, so I'm happy to have you here. I'm glad Best to luck be here. to you. Thank you so Take much. Take care. All right, we are here at the Libertarian National Convention, and I am here uh, with Zoltan Ishvan, recently a gubernatorial candidate in California. Uh, of course, thanks to our terrible system, that is that part of the uh, campaign is over here. We don't get to uh, vote on third parties in California anymore. We'll talk more about that maybe. But uh, Zoltan, by the way, wonderful to meet you in person. He's been on the show before, and uh, you're a big proponent. This is the, your main message here, is that you're a big proponent of the concept of transhumanism. So for people that might not be familiar with that concept, why don't you start off just explaining what that is and why you're such an advocate of it? Sure. Well, transhumanism is a growing social movement of potentially now tens of millions of people around the world that want to use science and technology to radically modify the human being and also to modify the human experience. It can be anything from brain implants to exoskeleton suits that get disabled people out of wheelchairs to even simple things like driverless cars, but it's always radical technology applied. Yeah. So I, I was actually talking to Tom Woods a few minutes ago downstairs, and I was like, you know, I got to go. I'm going to go interview Zoltan Ishvan about transhumanism. And he, he didn't really know exactly what it was. So I tried to give him a very quick explanation, and I just basically said what you said about, you know, ways we can modify our body with technology to, you know, prolong life. To And his response was, well, who's opposed to that? So that's my question. Who's opposed to that? Do you Why do you need to be out there talking about this? Is there opposition to this concept out there? Well, to be honest with you, there's an enormous amount of opposition. I mean, imagine... America is 75% religious. The main goal of transhumanism is really to 
potentially merge with machines and overcome death. Well, if 75% people are religious and death is sort of the main idea of religion, you have this clash between those who might you know, believe in an afterlife or want to get to that afterlife and meet their maker and those like myself who want to overcome, um, you know, death with science and technology. So even a lot of libertarians tend to be really skeptical of it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very divisive kind of topic. So uh, you gave a speech here a little bit earlier. What was the, the main crux of your speech that you gave here at the Libertarian National Convention? Well, the main crux of it is really just discussing my political campaigns and why, um, transhumanism needs to be led with a libertarian mindset. Because right now I feel, um, to some extent, um, transhumanism is being hijacked uh, by the, the left. And, um, you know, you, you got to be careful when you think of these things. You have a growing social movement that one day might com be comprised of billions of people. You don't want it to be a hard left movement. What do you mean by hijacked by the left? <clears throat> well, a lot of the transhumanists are very young people, and they feel very strongly about... Uh, socialism, very strongly about collectivism. And I'm trying to, you know, someone a bit older, say transhumanism began as a sort of libertarian-minded philosophy, and we should it shouldn't be hijacked by the left. It should be something that, you know, I guess defends personal freedoms, um, defends capitalism, uh, looks towards innovation as something that is the right of everyone to try to do, and not necessarily only for collective purposes. And I think... Um, a lot of the, the new younger people that are embracing transhumanism are really pushing it to the far left. And I worry about that because I remain, even though if I may be, you know, one of the more visible people of transhumanism, I know that underneath it, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people pushing it to the left. And, and so I want to steer it back to the, to the middle. Right. And within any technology, there's, uh, there's always benefits, potential benefits and potential dangers with technology in the hands of individuals and private individuals interacting and helping each other. Uh, it can be a wonderful thing. Technology in the hands of the state and maybe in the mindset of a, a so, sort of socialist controlling centralized mindset could actually be very, very dangerous if, say, there's a point where, well, you know, uh, people on the left decide that transhumanism and merging with machines is so beneficial that everybody must do it, that everybody must get a certain implant. Is that is that a, a fear that you have at all? No, you know, I think right now it's not the fear that everyone must do anything or that any kind of privacy issues are being violated. It's really this idea that, you know, when you look at economic output, when you look at uh, how societies operate, that we might get to kind of a fascist state that's transhumanist because people thought, oh, transhumanist technology belongs, you know, in kind of a socialist, it can only arrive in a socialist environment. And I don't feel that way at all. I feel that innovation is best pushed forward by competition. And um, it's not like I want, you know, it needs to be a dog-eat-dog, -dog, but it needs to be something that isn't pushed heavily from the left. And right now I'm just worried that the movement, which started off as a libertarian kind of-esque idea, is now being transformed to a, a socialist idea. And I don't think that'll be good for either the innovation side of things or the, the social side of the movement whatsoever. And as you mentioned earlier, you recently campaigned for governor uh, through the Libertarian Party in California. What kind of reception did you receive, uh, not just from Cal not just from libertarians, but from you know Californians in general about the, these concepts of transhumanism that you're out there uh, promoting? Well, you know, I don't think the California Libertarian Party was that <laughs> fond of my <laughs> my work. Uh, I think they were overwhelmed a little bit by the fact that I I do get a lot of media attention, and that media attention is is often not for libertarianism. It's often for transhumanism. I mean, I'm known as a, right. a public figure in the science and technology world, and not uh, necessarily. No one wants to hear about libertarianism. <laughs> it's the, it's the truth. You know, the media is really controlled 
dramatically, I think, by the left. And the left doesn't want to necessarily cover libertarian ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh, that makes perfect sense. And after all, the lefts right. are controlled by companies as well. And their board directors say, you know, but they all like to hear about transhumanism because right. transhumanism is this exploding field that's very interesting. So as a result, a lot of the media coverage, and there was a lot, and there was, you know, tens of millions of views over an 18-month campaign. Lots of different places covered my, my campaign. Um, but a lot of it was transhumanist oriented. So the Libertarian Party of California got a little bit upset with the idea that um, I guess I brought transhumanism so much into the libertarian mix. I don't. Th I think what they don't necessarily realize is that I don't control what the media writes. Right. I don't control whether they say I'm a libertarian or whether they say I'm a transhumanist. Mm -hmm. They write their stories. Right. And that's how it. And you're goes. happy to get your story out there in whatever way you when can. When you're running so for office, there's no such thing as bad press. Exactly. And uh, and that's how you're pushing forward. Right. So are, are there some people that, that seem to think you're just using the, the Libertarian Party as like a vehicle to promote your message? Or do you or I mean, do you think they think you're not really there for libertarianism? You're there more for transhumanism. Is that is that kind of a, a conflict you hear at all? Yes. Yes. Well, let me I'll be honest with you. I'm here for mostly and primarily the field of life extension, which is I don't want to die. I want to use science and technology to overcome life. <laughs> now, if libertarianism is the best method, and I do believe it is, because that's I've been a libertarian way before I was a transhumanist, just so you understand that. I mean, right. I've been a libertarian since I've been in real estate. And because uh, that's what made me a libertarian. I if you're if you're trying to do any kind of development, all the government wants to do is come down to you and make it so you can't make any money. Right. And I became a libertarian through this idea that, wow, these people are trying to control my lives. But then through a lot of other different things that happened in my life, I really kind of discovered transhumanism and began to dedicate my life to it. So it's not like it was, you know, I, somehow transhumanism was overcoming. But the most important thing has been overcoming death with science and technology. And I believe that libertarianism framework, that especially as an economic framework, as a social philosophy, is the best way for the world and myself to try to achieve that. So I don't see it at, at odds with one another, and I wish others didn't. But yes, plenty of people in the party are like, oh, Zoltan's using the party of this and that. Look, it's not about that. You know, whatever party I'm on, I'm, I'm going to have libertarian-esque ideas for my own reasons. And they were way before the transhumanist ideas. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's important. You know, there are so many people out there with so many interests and in so many things. If there are people that are interested in transhumanism and they hear about it through you and then they hear about libertarianism, I can only see how that's a positive thing. You know, there are, there are so many people promoting liberty in so many different ways through so many different aspects of the culture. There's no one right way. So if somebody's interested in transhumanism and hears about you and then they say, oh, he's a libertarian too, what's that? What's the harm in that? <laughs> well, and, and I, what I try to tell people is people. Liber um, you know, transhumanism is growing dramatically faster than libertarianism. And transhumanism will be a far larger movement within five or ten years than libertarianism. And that's just a fact because it, it, transhumanism is like environmentalism. It will be a billion-person movement at five, ten, fifteen, twenty years in the future. I'm not sure if libertarianism will ever get that large. It's not growing fast. It's already been around for a long time. So uh, I, think, I, I think libertarians should take note of that and say, well, maybe... It's wise then to, you know, invite people like myself who are subscribed to both philosophies and try to incorporate them. But so far, the libertarians, I got to be honest, have been quite close-minded. And this goes back potentially to what we talked about early on, which was if you're religious, you may be against transhumanism naturally, whether you're a libertarian or not, because after all, you are talking about life, death, your creator or not, mm -hmm. your, you know, so... There, it, it, transhumanism is such a core philosophy. Um, it cuts into every single aspect of your lifestyle. And I think that's where some of the libertarians have gotten kind of upset with my own campaigning that I did, uh, you know, try to combine the two together very, very substantially. 
Well, when a lot of people talk about transhumanism and this idea of a sort of improving our bodies, merging with machines in many ways, it, it sounds and feels like a very futuristic, far-off thing. But there are many of these technologies that exist right now. Can you give a few examples of, of, of things that are available today? Obviously, not everybody can afford them or access them, but many of these technologies do exist right now. So what, what's a few of them? Of course. And it's not only what exists now, it's what exists in two or three years. Already, the Chinese are working on augmenting intelligence at the embryonic stage of, of you know, having babies. And... America, we can't do this because, the, you know, we have moratoriums on the, that type of radical science. Right. But can you imagine we have two major universities in China right now trying to make brains smarter in, in, in the fetus? What that would mean when they're successful? Uh, it might mean an entire generation of Chinese babies is hardwired better, like 20, 30 percent better than Americans. Mm -hmm. Talk right. about a national security issue. OK, that's just something that's happening. Um, Two major companies in California, Brian Johnson's company, Curl, and Elon Musk's company, um, are dealing with neural prosthetics or brain implants. I mean, they've both put over $100 million into these companies working on brain implants so that you and I can have this conversation in five or ten years with um, our brains. We don't need microphones. We don't, I can get rid cameras. of all this equipment. Yeah, we can exactly. just sit here and some other thing in my brain will record it maybe. And, and, uh... <laughs> and of course, they already have the reason it's not that they have this technology available let's say at target or some walmart <laughs> but they have examples of this technology already that you know brain implant and brain uh, uh, wave technology has come a long way already and so you know there are half a million people around the world with implants in their connected directly to their brains that's transhumans and just the other day um i saw uh, when i was speaking in amsterdam or speaking in the netherlands in rotterdam I saw a guy with a robotic arm tied to, uh, you know, the, the, the robotic arm was tied to implants in his head. He could do all sorts of things. He grabbed my iPhone with his robotic hand. It's amazing. So we are helping somebody that loses their arm in an accident and gives them a new one. In five years, that new arm will be better than what we have right now in ourselves, or maybe seven years. But either way, I already seen what they had. I just felt it. I shook his hand. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. When you talk about how we can use uh, some of this technology to sort of augment intelligence in, in babies, create babies that are more intelligent than others, d is there ever a thought that, that that kind of thing could lead to sort of a dystopian future where we have a class system where you have, say, some certain people have access to technology, they make their very smart babies, and now only a certain segment of the population is super hyper-intelligent, and maybe the rest of us that don't have that access to technology, we're, we're basically the Neanderthals. <laughs> well, and this is why I was, I was quite disappointed that the California Libertarian Party wasn't more embracing of some of my gubernatorial run, because I tried to explain, like, whatever your reasons for not, you know, embracing transhumanism, you know, I understand if I'm not upholding libertarian values, that's one thing, but generally I am. But you need to, because if you don't, all of a sudden society could divide very quickly and we can get to this utopian where we have different classes. This will happen. There will be people that will choose not to use technology. There are people right now that choose not to use technology or social media and they can't get a My job. My dad won't get on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, and they can't get a job in the corporate world. Try to go and get as a trader or try to go into like a major corporation in Coca-Cola or something like that and get a job as some director somewhere without having some kind of social media profile. Like it or not, I'm not I don't like social media, but that's if you're not on it, you can't get a job. Already this distinction is happening, but the distinction is going to become much more severe when we have construction workers with robotic arms that can lift five times what their neighbor lifts, and they're both in the same job. Well, guess who's going to get fired first? That guy's out of work. That guy's out of work. 
So you've promoted, I think this is one thing you've gotten a lot of pushback on in your campaign. Um, I don't think, I think you don't call it a UBI. It's something like a lamb dividend because as technology increases and things go to move towards to machines more fastly, uh, more rapidly, move towards automation, there will be a lot of people say truckers where in five, ten years, trucks will all go on their own. So truckers are out of work. So you propose as a solution sort of, a, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it further. Sure. Well, I support this idea. And I, my governor's run was basically based on this, what we call a federal land dividend. And it's based on a very simple concept. Over 50 percent of the Western United States is government-owned federal land. Most of it is totally unused. Um, it's worth approximately $150 trillion. If you divide $150 trillion by 325 million Americans, every single United States citizen is worth a half million dollars. I mean, do you have a half million dollars? I have Not half on million. me. I have... I, um, yeah. yeah. And... <laughs> We are facing a very real crisis with automation. Robots are starting to take jobs. When Trump said, oh, immigrants are taking jobs, this was a lie. This was wrong. The jobs are being lost to automation. The jobs are being lost to technology. You're seeing less lawyers ever than ever before because there are AIs on computers and different types of software programs that can already do legal stuff. The same thing's going to happen to doctors. Radiologists are being, are, well, now they're starting to be replaced by AIs that can read cancer reports and things like that or hearts and whatnot. These are doctors and lawyers. I mean, if their jobs can be taken, everybody's job can be taken. We need a basic income to create uh, a way for people to survive as robots and automation take over more jobs. But I, as a libertarian, don't want a basic income that raises the taxes on the rich. I want a basic income that can create a, a world for everyone to live in without taxing me further. A federal land dividend. We just simply take all that federal land I spoke about, all $150 trillion, start leasing it out to companies, private entities, whatever, and we take the money that they pay us and split it between all Americans. That land belongs to Americans. That land is not government land. It belongs to you and I. So that's what a federal land dividend is. It's a libertarian version of a basic income. It swallows Social Security, completely eliminates uh, welfare and food stamps, completely eliminates also the issue for all this you know, um, uh, government health care. Because now with a federal land dividend, everyone can actually afford private health care. It's a really good system, and it's catching on. But I know because the basic it sounds like a basic income, it's been very controversial. But it is libertarian at the core. All right. So this land dividend, you're, you're, you're saying you would lease the land so you would have a constant revenue from it. So you're still having – you're basically are having the government continue to own the land, but – Lease it out. Is that kind of what you're saying? Because well, otherwise, if it's a one-time sale, then you know we have that 150 trillion dollars. I guess we give 500 thousand dollars to everybody, but then you know, in in 10, 20 years, that money is gone. So, how do you see this as a continuing program as technology continues to advance? Yes, I see it as a continuing program at least 25 to 50 uh, years out. After that, I'm not, you know, in my opinion. <laughs> because of how quickly humans will be changing with technology. I'm not even sure in 50 years we'll necessarily be living as human like, beings. Do, have... do you think people can be weaned off of it as, as we had newer generations adapt to the world of well, this Well, I think technology? at some point we have so many robots around us that they take care of us in all our ways, <laughs> and we don't even need – I mean, maybe even we live in a society where capitalism doesn't even exist at some point because um, robots do everything, and maybe just a few – I don't know how it exactly would be, but there's, there's a good chance that 85% of jobs will be lost over the next 30 years. So we must create a system that where that 85% of people can um, have something to live on. But I think ultimately, yeah, we lease out that land over 25, 50, maybe 100 years. And, and again, it doesn't have to pay only a basic income. Maybe if libertarians are so against basic income, they can 
pay off the the national debt so that we don't we can need we can pay less in taxes, mm-hmm. or it can also make maybe, maybe make it so that we don't pay taxes over the next twenty five years. I mean, there are a lot of different things you can do, but the most important thing to say is that there is $150 trillion of federal land out there to not do anything with it because we're holding that land for generations is uh, is asinine, especially as there's growing inequality in the United States. And remember, I'm from California. In California, we have 19 million people essentially living at the poverty line of $24,000. We have an enormous homeless population. We have an enormous poverty problem. So we need to do something. As you know, as running as a candidate for governor, I, I had to say, I had to come up with some kind of plan. Uh, obviously, you're here at the Libertarian Convention. You spoke earlier today. Um, you've been involved in the Libertarian Party. Are you considering running for president for the Libertarian nomination in 2020? So, you know, I'm not 100% sure I'm what I'm going to do exactly. <laughs> so you're uh, thinking about it then? Oh, no, I, I, I'm almost 100% sure I'm running. I'm just not 100% sure that... Um, a would be for the Libertarian Party, mm-hmm. uh, even though I like Libertarian you did, Party. Was there also a transhumanist party, I believe, that you yeah, started? Yeah, no, that... no, I just, you know, the question is really, where do I, I best belong? I, I, where is I, the best I, vehicle for this message? Yes, I learned some hard lessons with the California Libertarian Party. I, just to be honest with you, I wasn't that well received. Mm-hmm. Even though I got the most votes of any of the other gubernatorial candidates, uh, I don't want to fight everyone. I want people to... Right like me. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously you're running for office and I have to wonder if the libertarians are maybe too strict with some of their ideas. I, I really thought they were the most open-minded party, but I've just, you know, sadly they are not, and at least not in California. So I'm still determining how I'm going to undo this, but, and whether I would run at all, but I definitely, you know, like whether I'm an intrinsic part of the par- party or not, uh, I'm definitely a libertarian. I'm not a, not a libertarian because of, you know, I, I changed my views. I was libertarian when I was running in 2016. A lot of my ideas were very libertarian. They're libertarian because I'm an entrepreneur, because uh, I, I had dealt with so much government in the development business. So I'll continue to promote libertarian ideas, but where I end up with, uh, I, I'm just not sure yet. Well, Sultan, I'll give you uh, one last chance here before we wrap up. Why don't you give uh, your final elevator pitch? Uh, anyone out there who's maybe just hearing about this concept for the first time or, or thinks it sounds kind of wacky, why should they look more into transhumanism and the benefits it can have, particularly for people of a libertarian bent? Well, look, you know, transhumanism's number one goal is really to eliminate suffering and to eliminate disease. Nobody likes to have their father die. My father died this uh, last year. Nobody wants to have people they love die. I have two kids. I mean, we want to protect those that we love. Transhumanism is about using radical science and technology to make us live longer and better. And um, if you're interested in those things, then you need to support it. And I believe that innovation comes best from a libertarian framework, a framework that supports individual liberties, free markets, and things like that. So those are the ideas that I support, whether, you know, it doesn't matter anything else. Innovation comes best from free markets and free minds. And uh, that's really why I'm a libertarian. And uh, one of the best ways people can uh, find out more about you and the work you're doing and just transhumanism in general? Sure. Go to ZoltanEastfan.com and, um, you know, look at everything up there. You can email me or I'm all, all over the social media or just Google. There's been a lot of, lot of good stuff that's come out recently. So it's a fun stuff to review to learn more about transhumanism, especially in the libertarian angle of it combined. Sultan Eastfan, it's been a pleasure finally meeting you in person. Wish you the best of luck. It's certainly a fascinating subject. Thank you so much. Thanks.
All right, folks, that is all she wrote. It only took three weeks to get you all of the amazing audio that I recorded at the Libertarian National Convention. Uh, episode 355 and episode 356 also contain uh, interviews that I did both at the Human Action Bash, which took place right prior to the convention, as well as um, a lot of interviews I did at the convention. So to get the full series, just uh, click back in that podcast feed, check them all out. I did so many interviews, and I was really happy to not, not only meet uh, people that I've interviewed in the past, like Mr. Zoltan Ishvan, but also just to find out about so many campaigns and meet all of the passionate people that are running these campaigns. And, you know, when I first started this podcast, I spoke about this on the Jason Stapleton program recently. I do recommend going and checking out uh, last Monday's episode of the Jason Stapleton program, which actually resulted in Jason joining the Libertarian Party. So I was uh, thrilled I was able to uh, stick the old harpoon in him a little bit. Uh, but, you know, when, when I first started the show, I really wanted to focus just on the philosophy and a lot of the work people were doing in sort of the non political realm, uh, the non-directly political realm anyway. Of course, it's all politics here uh, in a sense, but uh, I really didn't want to have candidates on. Uh, it wasn't the area that I wanted to go into, but uh, somewhere around 2016 in the lead up to a lot of elections and the, that year's Libertarian National Convention, I started to get a lot of interest from candidates for office that wanted to come on the show and wanted a platform for their voice. And ultimately, I, I decided that's why I started the show. I started the show to give a platform to people like me, to people who want wanted to have a voice and wanted to spread the ideas of liberty. So I decided, yeah, why not? Why shouldn't I have candidates for office on? And that's when I started to think, you know, maybe the political realm, the Libertarian Party or, or what have you, isn't something I need to avoid. Maybe it's something I can actually embrace because there are great people there doing so much hard work. I met so many amazing Real libertarians, by the way, true libertarians, Ron Paul kids, you know, people that grew up with these ideas, people that spent their entire life in the Libertarian Party, and people that are newer to the movement. But all these people were so excited, and I met so many hardworking people at this convention that it really inspired me to want to do more to help candidates. And I've got a lot of candidates uh, that I've come in contact with, a lot of people that have candidates they want us to interview, and there was just no way that we could do this with the current format of the show. Uh, and, and to do that along with all of the other stuff that we're doing here, as well as our our bonus content on Patreon. Uh, we just can't fit it into the schedule in that sense. So what we, what we have decided to do, however, is to create a new show. We're still working on a name, so if you want to give us some suggestions for what the show could be called, uh, we're certainly willing to take them. You can drop some suggestions over at our Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you're not over there, be sure to join up. We have some great conversations in there. Uh, but if you want to give some suggestions for what the show should be called, we are open to them. Basically, we're planning to do very short 10-15 to 15 minute profiles of libertarian candidates across the country. Uh, all three of us, myself, Brian and Odie, will host host some of these interviews, and it will be an entirely separate show. It'll still be in the same podcast feed, in the Lions of Liberty feed, although I don't know, maybe we will start a separate feed as well. I have to think about it a bit. But uh, it will be uh, probably once a week, and it may end in November when a lot of these elections occur, uh, but it really is just going to depend on the response. So if you have a candidate, a libertarian candidate for office that you would like to be highlighted on this program, be sure to hit me up. You can you can just email me directly, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. I already have a list I've been forming. So if you already talked to me about it, I probably do already have you know uh, that name on the list. But if you want to just confirm, please reach out. You can also just hit me up on Twitter, on Facebook. I'm all over the place. Or you know just drop me a note and tag me in, in the Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook. But uh, we do plan to start recording these interviews uh, hopefully sometime mid-August, mid to late August. We still have to meet and plan some of the specifics. But uh, in concept, in theory, we are completely agreed that this is something that we should do to try to get um, some more of these candidates' voices out there. I was really 
inspired to do that, uh, being at the Libertarian National Convention. Again, thanks so much to our supporters on Patreon for helping us send us there. Uh, of course, our Patreon supporters get access to all this audio. If you're if you're um, part of the non-paying public, the Patreon people have already heard this whole show. So, uh, of course, in addition to all sorts of other bonus content we do, we do extra Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquors programs. We do a show called Conspiracy Corner. I'm pretty sure you can figure out what that's all about. I do bonus segments with all sorts of guests. I've done bonus segments with Tom Woods, uh, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, Julie Borowski, taking questions from our fans. So we do provide a lot of extra content for our Patreon supporters uh, for as little as $5 a month. And that helps us buy the equipment we need and um, you know purchase flights, hotels, all that stuff to attend events like the LNC, like Porkfest. And we are just so, so, so appreciative of everybody that has helped us to get to these events. It's really, in many ways, been a life-changing few weeks. And I don't, I don't say that lightly uh, going to these events. So I really want to thank everybody out there, not only our paid supporters, but everybody who has supported the show, uh, given us words of encouragement, people that came up to me at the LNC at Porkfest and thanked us for what we're doing. Uh, that's what this is all about. Uh, we are we are not libertarian podcasters to get rich. Uh, if we were, it would be a very, very foolish path to take, let me tell you. Uh, so I really want to thank everyone out there. And uh, yeah, I think that's about all I got. I think it's been long enough. If you're still around right now, you are a true, true fan. So I really do appreciate you guys. Don't forget to tune in this coming Wednesday to Brian McWilliams and his weekly shot of comedy culture and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. He has been killing it lately. Had a great episode with our good friend uh, Michael Baldwin last week. Be sure to check that out. And then John Odermatt, as always, just crushing it on Felony Friday with some amazing interviews. Until next time, folks, live long and live free. <laughs>